so excited to be with you here today on Father's Day. And uh, before I jump into what I'm going to say this morning, we, we're going to watch a video here. Um, some of you would have been here on Mother's Day, and you may have remembered that I tried my best to give a tribute to women on that day. And uh, in response to that, I, I had said that we would ask a woman from our congregation to give a tribute to men. And um, I asked Darlene Hermanson to give this tribute, and the reason I asked her to give the tribute was I was out for lunch with her and Anders, one, her husband Anders, one day, and just listening to Starlene talk about her marriage to Anders was pretty awesome. First of all, she really praised her husband, so I thought, wow, Anders is awesome. And then as she was praising her husband, I thought, wow, he's also a pretty lucky guy to have someone who, you know, recognizes how awesome he is, hey? And then I was, uh, as it went on, I thought, you know, marriage is sort of awesome, isn't it? It's what a great design. And then as I took it even further in my mind, I thought, wow, God is awesome that he created two very different types, men and male and female, and then designed it so that they would partner in life, whether that's marriage or partnering in any other capacity. It's quite a remarkable thing. So anyhow, I thought, I'm going to ask Darlene to give a tribute. Now, she took this assignment on with great fear and trembling. And uh, it's a bit of a hard assignment, to be honest. I asked her to give a Bible-based tribute to men. And uh, so she took this on, and I appreciate what she's done, and I think you will too. So let's just, we've got a video, we'll roll that, and you can hear uh, a tribute for you guys this morning. Good morning, Hillcrest, and happy Father's Day. I'm Starlene. Pastor Steve did an absolute awesome job of a tribute to women on Mother's Day. And when he asked me if I would do a tribute to men on Father's Day, I said yes, because I have the most amazing husband and father. And men like them deserve a good tribute. So that's what we're going to try and pull off today. But when I started thinking about getting on stage, I got too nervous. So that's why I'm coming to you via video. All right, let's frame this in light of the gospel. And the gospel is this that God created the world and what he made was good. But when sin came on the scene, it corrupted his original design. But this is where the gospel is good news because Jesus came on the scene and redeemed us. Jesus made God's original design possible again. So in light of the gospel of creation, God's design, the fall and redemption, let's take a look at what God designed for man. In Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of creation. We can see God's original design before sin. There are three things God says about man that I want to highlight. First, it says that man would rule over creation. Second, that man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And by this, he becomes responsible for someone else. And third, God put man in the garden to work it and care for it. So God made man to be physical and strong in order to care for creation. But when sin entered, the design was corrupted and what God made for good could be used for evil. So I do want to acknowledge that there might be some people here today who might not want to give a tribute to men. Much of our world does still live under the curse of sin. But through Jesus, we can live in the light of redemption. When we humble ourselves and accept the free gift of grace that Jesus' blood bought for us, we can be redeemed. In Romans 6, 17 and 18, it says, But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So God redeemed his plan for humanity and we can live in the original design. So what does a godly man look like who's living in the reality of being a redeemed creation? How God first designed him to be and how are women supposed to treat them? In Genesis 2 it says, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So this is where women came in. We were designed to help men as they rule over creation, are responsible for their family, and care for creation. One way Anders, my husband, 
is responsible for us is making sure that our tires are changed on our vehicles in the summer and winter. Could he change them by himself? Sure. But when I'm out there helping him, working alongside him, handing him tools, it just makes things so much more fun. So when I come alongside to support, it just makes things better. The other thing in the original design was for man to be strong and physical to take care of creation. Men who are physiologically stronger have used this strength throughout history to defend others and therefore are caring for creation. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul addresses Timothy and says, but you man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now there's two words in there that seem a little opposed to each other. The first sentence ends with the word gentleness, and even in the King James it says meekness. But then the very next sentence starts with fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. So being a meek man does not mean a weak man. Men are called to fight. They're called to use their strength, both spiritually and physically. Think about King David. Sometimes maybe we just think of him as the psalmist, but also remember he was an absolute epic warrior. So he was both gentle and a fighter. In Philippians 2, it says, Though Jesus was God, he didn't take advantage of it, and he humbled himself, even to the point of death on a cross. This is what true meekness or gentleness is, being brave enough to take on the cross. Jesus had all the power of God, but for our sake, sacrificed for us. That's more strength and power than I can even imagine. And this is the strength that is in the heart of every man and is designed to be used to care for creation. Men need to embrace this strength and women, we need to encourage it. As women, the number one thing we can do to honor the men who so bravely protect and sacrifice for us is to respect them. Acknowledge what they do for us and the great role they play in our lives. Treat them with the honor they deserve. There are so many godly men in this church who reveal God's original good design through their lives. They're humble leaders who take the weight of responsibility for their families, their protectors, who use their strength to sacrifice for us. And so to the men, I say, thank you. To the women, I say, let's honor and respect our men, not just today, but every day. Let's be aware of their great role and the weight of responsibility they have and give them the recognition when they live up to God's original good design. Happy Father's Day. God bless. All right. Thank you, Starlene. Welcome to Men Are Awesome Day. <laughs> that was a great tribute. And, uh, you, know, it's, you know, when you have a good tribute, it actually makes you feel like a little bit like you're, you're called a little bit higher to more noble purposes. And I really appreciate that in what you shared there, Starlene. That was awesome. By the way, if you're sitting there and going, I want to do a, a tribute to women or to men, well, just Give me an email. Let me know. We don't have to wait till spring. I kind of think um, we should be the kind of church where we rise to as we rise as men to honor women, and we rise as women to honor men, and to do it frequently, and to again give thanks to the good God who created us, male and female, and then gave us to each other so that we could be partners in this life. So, lots to celebrate there. You know, Starlene said, through Jesus, we can live in the light of redemption. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, what's redemption? Um, she, she basically defined it in another one of the sentences she shared. She said, Jesus made God's original design possible again. Jesus made God's original design possible again. You know, the Bible is full of words sort of like, like redemption. They're re-words. Uh, you'll find them again, that that God's plan, it's full of rewords, reconcile, redeem, restore, return, regenerate, resurrect. And each one of these words suggests a return to an original condition that was lost. 
Because God wants to restore things. God wants to restore things that were tainted by human sin. He wants to restore our hearts, our minds, our bodies. And, but we're not the only thing that's been tainted by human sin. And I want to just use these pots again. I used these two weeks ago to illustrate things. Does anyone know what this pot is? It's earth. Yeah, this is a pot for earth, okay? And then what this pot is? Heaven. Yeah, that's great. And what is this pot? New heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem. I heard different things. Okay, that's awesome. So quick re- review, and then we'll... The first pot, earth, represents our world, which God made very good. But it was soon tainted by human sin, and as a result was placed under God's judgment. It's like the world's best chili tainted by rancid beans. One bite, and you can tell the original would have been way better if it hadn't had some extra ingredients that weren't good. The second pot is heaven. It represents where, the, where people who trust in Jesus go when they die. A place free from the power and presence of sin, so there's no rancid beans in this recipe. It'll be a place of rest and rejoicing and reunion. It's better by far than this life, and if you know what God promises it'll be like, if you, if you understand what it's going to be like, and if you had to choose between the two, you would choose this one over the earth that we live in now because everything in it is good. Everything in it is good. But wait, wait, wait. God has an even better recipe in store for us yet to come in the future. And it's when Jesus comes again, when the bodies of those who died trusting him will be resurrected and restored and significantly upgraded, and heaven and earth will come together and will live on the new earth. This is represented by this pot, which is the new heaven and the new earth. This is God's biggest restoration project by size. The title for this series that we've been teaching is Eyes on Eternity. Last week we saw a video where people were using it. They were going, eyes up. You know, eyes up. Remember seeing that? The, the, the volleyball, or no, softball players last week. Eyes up. So eyes on eternity. And the subtitle is Heaven, Earth, and the Restoration of Everything You Love. So where does that come from? Acts 3.19, Peter, a follower of Jesus, said it this way. And this is like his first sermon, big sermon, uh, after the day of Pentecost, one of his first sermons, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And that he may send the Messiah. Now, Jesus had already come, and he'd already gone back to heaven. So this is sending the Messiah again, the second coming of Jesus. That he may send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him, or he's staying in heaven, until the time comes for God to restore everything. Did that give you chills? Restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So just Jesus is in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, at which time God will send Jesus the Messiah to come again. And God promised to do this through the ancient prophets. And so let me just give you a little sample. So this isn't... Let me, I, I'll give you another illustration. Well, I'll come back to it in a second. Come back to it in a second. The ancient prophets did talk about it. This isn't just something at the very end of the book of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. It's talked about in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah is a good example. Isaiah 65, 17. See, well, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be re- remembered, nor will they come to mind. And then Isaiah 66, 22. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure, means last forever, before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. So this is Isaiah. He lived 700 years before Jesus came along. Okay? And he was the same prophet. He used to prophesy all the different things about how Jesus would be born, how Jesus would live, and even how Jesus would die with incredible accuracy. So if you ever want to read about that, Isaiah 53 has got some really great uh, parts of those prophecies. But Isaiah also has probably one of the best commentaries on the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 60 of his, of his book there. And it's got really neat stuff because in there you find almost the exact same word-for-word descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth 
that also show up in the book of Revelation. Let me give an example. Isaiah 60, 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Now let me read that to you in Revelation. Revelation 22, or 21, 23 says, The city, this is the new Jerusalem, the coming together of heaven and earth, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Or even Revelation 22, verse 5, There will be no more night. They'll not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light. So it's almost word for word what's in Revelation and what's in Isaiah. And some people have said that Isaiah 60 is the best biblical commentary on Revelation 21 and 22. So back to Peter. Back to Peter. So Peter who said that Jesus is coming again for the restoration of all things also says something that seems slightly contradictory. Let me read it to you. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Okay, so you've got the restoration of all things. And then you've got, seemingly, the destruction of the earth. So I I teased this a few weeks ago. Will the earth be burnt up? Or will it be renewed? And let me just give you a, a sampling. That phrase, burnt up, that... Um, that shows up in the King James Version. That's what I, when I was a kid growing up, we read out of that translation. I memorized scriptures in that translation. So I was familiar with it. That's what it said. The NIV says laid bare, which isn't quite the same. And the ESV, just to give you a sampling of three different versions, says exposed. So it's a little bit like, you know, what, what exactly is going on here? I'll give you my own opinion. And It's my opinion. You don't have to hang on to it. I have reasons for this opinion. I'll share some of them with you, but you don't have to. If you disagree with me on this, I'm not bothered at all. Um, The main thing is there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But how does it come about? So I think it will be burnt, and it will be renewed. So I kind of, I don't know. Mount St. Helens erupted in the 1980, erupted right around Portland area, and... um, some people who lived there, they reported that the, the ash, when it, like, so ash fell, and uh, basically people, they had to wash their cars and their driveways every day, because new ash fell every day, and fell, and fell, and fell, and fell. And all the greenery was covered, all the grass and all the plants, and, and people said, there was predictions at that time that it would be decades, and some even ventured to say a century before that area would ever be green again because of the, the, the thickness of the ash. But within just a few years, it just started to be, it, nature worked its way back through, things started to change again, and the place began to be, um, be restored. And I kind of think, I mean, that's sort of a slight illustration, but I kind of think that, again, I'm not taking, you don't have to take this to the bank, but I am kind of thinking that as the, I think the, the earth being judged by fire is yet to come. It's, it's again in many, many scriptures, and so I think the earth will be burnt, but not entirely destroyed. And that God's intention is to renew the earth. It's a restoration project. So it will be purified. It says in the ESV, exposed. Anything that is sinful will be, uh, there will be a purification. There will be nothing left of that. And that God will renew the earth. So that's, there, I, there you go. I've, I've tipped my hand on what I believe I'll even commit to it a little bit more. Not too, I'm not committing to it too big with post-it notes, but this post-it note's not a big commitment, is it? But I'll just put it up here for fun. Oops. So think that the earth is, is one, is the renewal of the earth. Can you see that? Renewed. <laughs> The renewal of the earth is one of God's great reclamation projects, his great restoration projects. Now, 2 Peter, 
or in Peter, he goes on to talk a little bit further than that after he talks about uh, the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Sounds pretty good. A place where righteousness dwells instead of crime and corruption and um, all sorts of things that are bad. So then, dear friends, since you look forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So what we're living in, we're living in this time period, back to the first pot here. We're living in this world. And uh, if you died today and if you were trusting in Christ and, and you belong to him as a ch- his child, this is where you go. But our ultimate hope, this is, there's going to come a day where the heaven and earth are going to be made new. And Revelation talks about, um, Revelation talks about uh, that day, that tipping point. Let me just read to you from Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. The old order of things where sin has corrupted has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Let me give you a little bit. I'm going to give you another illustration this morning here. This is my biggest Bible. Or my thickest Bible. I just got it, actually. Don't worry, this Bible's not been harmed in doing this. I wanted to just show you something. So I put little, some little, you know, little clamps on this Bible. Again, pages are just fine. Don't worry. I wanted to show you the sections of the Bible just in, in how they relate to uh, what God is doing to the earth. The first section of the Bible is Genesis uh, 1 and 2. And that's talking about when this was created very good, this creation was made very good, and there's no sin in it, and it was not corrupted in any way. It was, and Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. And their, their job was to, again, as we heard from uh, Starlene, rule over creation and expand Eden, really, because if they're going to rule over creation, it wasn't just they were going to make forays out of Eden. I think that the goal in that was that to take this God, because uh, God walked with them and God communed with them. They had this intimacy with God that, that, uh, was, that we haven't experienced in our lifetime in the same way. And their goal was to expand this all over the world. So, where does it talk about that in the Bible? These first two chapters, it talks about that. And then what I just read to you out of Revelation 21, the, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down and God being with his, with his people and he's making everything new. Well, you can find that in these last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. So you see that? This is, so this describes the past, the Eden that we, we are are not, you know, that Adam and Eve experienced. And this describes the future, the restoration of what was lost and even the improvement of it. And this is where we live in the middle, this really big section. Now, of course, that makes sense because it's written to us in this time period for us to understand. So, of course, it's going to be written mostly about what Jesus has done for us, 
and how we got to this point and now how we should live and, and all the instructions for how we should live in this new, you know. But even peppered throughout here, there's talk that goes back and talk that goes forward to these time periods that are, only touch, that, that are really emphasized by the first and last chapters. So there's our, there's our, our past, there's our present, and here's our future. I am making everything new. That's what, that's what the Lord has said. We're in the middle of what God made very good in the past, but has been corrupted, and what God will restore in the future. So Ephesians 1, 9 to 10 is another one of those uh, all things passages. And I encountered this when we were going through Ephesians series in the fall, and I, all, I kept stopping at it and going, I'm not totally sure if I fully understand all that this means, but I think it's pretty spectacular. So as he has made, to us, made known to us, Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things, to bring unity to all things when times have reached their fulfillment, of course, in heaven and on earth under Christ. So everything in creation to come under Christ. So you could say in a way like, well, who's it under right now? Well, God, this, you know, God created this world and he gave, he delegated responsibility for it to humanity. And that didn't go so well because humanity uh, stopped trusting God and, and uh, rebelled against God and actually uh, rejected God's plan. And then, you know, there's some there's talk in, through the Bible that talks about how the God of this world, the, you know, the enemy, Satan, the great deceiver, the serpent in the garden, that he has influence in the world in this day. But God isn't just in a retreat. God isn't just saying, oh, man, here's corrupted humanity, here's corrupted, here's corrupted um, the corrupted earth. No, he says that my intention is to reclaim it all. You know, when I was a kid, we used to sing um, a hymn in the church I grew up in. And my dad really liked it, so he would also sing it when he was doing dishes. So, and it's, it was the song, uh, This is My Father's World. This is my father's world. This is God's world. And uh, the last line in the song is this. Um, Jesus who died will be satisfied and heaven and earth be one. Hmm. The coming together of heaven and earth. Quite a remarkable thing. I mean, right now, you know, God's throne is here. The tree of life is here. Our loved ones who who have passed on and trusted in Jesus are here. And we are here. And yet, there's a day coming when, when this and this are going to all be one. Imagine that. God's throne, the new Jerusalem, the earth and heaven come together. God and his people reunited. Our bodies restored, our minds restored, our hearts restored and glorified and all that that means. The earth restored and more glorious than it's ever been. The earth new, the earth renewed. I mean, I think this is a great, this is a great, great, great hope. You know, this just shows up in literature too. This shows up in literature. It shows up in arts. It shows up in culture. It's funny. I, I haven't thought about this a lot through my Christian life, to be honest. I want to I show you a clip. It's from Les Mis, the Les Miserables. It's the, you know, the great uh, mu- musical. But uh, this is the movie version, and it's the epilogue song. So it's the very end of the movie, and uh, it's Jean Valjean, if you know if you don't know the story, anyhow, he, leads, he lives a hard life and he's trying his whole life to uh, fight for redemption. It is a redemption story. Things are restored. 
And yet there's been great injustices in the, in the movie and all sorts of things, just like our real lives. Like, don't we experience great injustices where you go, will that ever be made right? Will that ever be fixed? Will there ever be justice for what happened? And then there's, you know, anyhow, it's, it's quite a neat story, and it, and it just really uh, rides on the rails of, um, of Christian thought. Anyhow, I want you to watch to the end. This is Jean Valjean. He's, it's his, he's dying. I'm, I'm going to explain it for I Maybe I'll take all the fun out of it if I explain it too much. He's dying, and then he's meeting all the people who've already died, and they're joining him in a great chorus, and they're singing about the garden of God and how when they go to the garden of God, there'll be great reward there. And they'll live free. And so it's sort of like there's a great cloud of witnesses to join him. Anyhow, let's watch the clip. On this page, I write my last confession. Read it well when I at last am sleeping. The story of one who turned from hating the man who only learned to love when you were in his keeping. Come with me, but chains oh. will never bind you. Take me to your glory. My hands, I'll lead you to salvation. Take my love, for love is everlasting. And remember the truth that once was spoken to love another person is to see the face of premises in the, in the whole movie and the whole story is this, this premise of hope. And we've been talking about that for several weeks. We're saying that the hope of heaven, why do we talk about heaven? Because it's, 
It's meant to be an anchoring hope in our lives. It's meant to be something when things go wrong or things go bad that it gives us encouragement. And we know that this will, injustice or corruption or our own struggle with and fight with sin is not a forever thing, but that there is a coming a day when those things will change. So it's meant to give us great hope. I remember I was reading someone this week, and, and uh, they had a critique about talking about heaven too much. They said, well, you know, what's the practical? What's the practical? What's the practical? And there are some practicals out of, well, there's some credible practicals out of uh, talking about heaven. But the reality is that sort of shows a little bit of our culture, doesn't it, today? Is that we, we want to go, well, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Heaven? Yeah, 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 yeah. What about this life? How does it affect now? And we're, we're betraying what we really think, aren't we? That this life is way more important. That this life is, is the best it'll ever be. What about my life now? Now, I'm not saying I, I believe that the, the theology of heaven, the understanding of the new heaven and the new earth and what God has got prepared for us has incredible impact on how we live our lives today. In fact, I, I believe that it's God is calling each of us to enter into situations drawing on the hope of heaven, drawing on what the future kingdom of God looks like, and pulling into our present those values and those realities. Also, I believe the hope of heaven should free us, free us more than we should be the most free people to engage in risks for God in this life because of the hope of heaven. Right? I, I think that there's a sustaining influence of the hope of heaven so that you can enter into truly heartbreaking work for God. You can enter into scenarios that otherwise you would be too dismayed or discouraged to ever encounter, but because, you can, because this is an anchoring hope, a living hope within your life, it enables you to, to do those things. But you won't be able to sustain those things if this is a casual hope. Like if, it, if it's just sort of like a feature, you know, anchoring hope. It's, anchor is like the, the main thing that holds the ship in the storm. Right? You can have other things that are sort of nice on a boat. I don't know. Do boats have cup holders? I don't know. But this is the anchor, not a cup holder. This is the anchor. And so I, I think we've been pressing into this as much as we can because we want it to be an anchor. We've been asking God, God, would you do a work in my heart so that this becomes a greater and greater reality for me? Let me I want to tell you one thing that changed in me. Oh, this is, this is a silly story, but I've been, I've been loving reading about heaven. I'm reading several different books about heaven. I've been loving reading about heaven. And... Um, it's got me thinking a lot about, I shared this the other week, my, my greatest sports moments. I think, what? Okay. This week, I'm coaching my son's soccer. And there's seven kids. And we get to the end, and we got about 10 minutes left after all the drills and all the things we did. And I just said, hey, tonight let's just do something different. How about all of you kids, put your finger in the air, point at the kid who you want to be my partner, and then two of us will take on the rest of the six of you. They all pointed at my son. So I was like, all right, let's do it. So we got out there, and it was just like the glory days again. I was doing pullbacks and crossovers. I was setting my son up with chip shots. They'd come like a big swarm and chip it over the crowd. He'd have a breakaway. Oh, it was awesome. It was five minutes in, we were up three nothing. I was like, yeah, I'm the man. And then my body started to tell me things. You know, just sort of messages like, you haven't done any cardio for two years. And so I started to feel my side and the pain in there. And uh, I started to uh, taste something different in my throat. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I slowed right down to basically a walk. You know, something about kids who are like 9 to 12 years of age, they're a little bit like sharks. I mean, they could smell blood, and they could hear me breathing, and they knew it was their time now. And you know those stinkers, those stinkers, 
I have tried all season to get them to be better at passing and don't hog the ball. Pass because it's way more effective in the long run. And this was the moment they decided to implement it. <laughs> Hadn't passed all year hardly. And suddenly they're passing the ball because they knew as long as they pass the ball, that old man can never catch us. And I suffered the next five minutes, great indignities and humiliations. I hardly touched the ball once other than to fish it out the back of my net. And I think I just sort of stumbled into the truck when I got, you know, done the game and went back home exhausted. Suffice to say, I'm not at my peak. I think of my days playing football. Probably my peak when I played football was about age 22. With soccer, I'm pretty convinced it was when I was 30. I had an incredible season when I was 30. But... I think about all the things I love, physical things. I, I, one night came to mind when I, was th- when I was reading about heaven. I thought of a night where uh, I was with, on a program called Street Invaders, and I was one of the leaders, and there was a whole bunch of, once all the teenagers had gone to bed, there was a whole bunch of 20-year-old something leaders, and we were awake, and we found some boxing gloves, like two pairs, and then it just was the greatest time. We just said, okay, well, you have to box him, and every, we made a rule. Everyone has to box everyone. So we, got to, we were hooting and hollering and laughing and sweating and, you know, and every time someone le- landed a haymaker punch, we were cheering. And it was the best time. We had, you, know, it was, you know, there's a good sore and a good tired. That's what we felt at the end of the night. We were just like, we had so much fun tonight. When I'm reading about heaven and how earthy it is, I start to get excited because I think, oh, I know I'm never getting back to my best days in sports on this earth, but I kind of think my best days in sports are yet to come. I think they're yet to come. I can hardly wait to run my favorite receiver route in heaven, the out and up, or chair pattern, doesn't matter. I can hardly wait. I've run that pattern since I was in grade five. I don't know, that sounds strange to you. Let's, what, do you what do you relate to? Maybe it's something totally different. How about you? You love food. You love the sauces. You love the rich food. But it's not good for your heart. What if you could have the richness of food, all the goodness of the sauces and the gravies, and it wouldn't hurt you at all? I think for some of you, your greatest artwork is yet to come. Your favorite food is yet to come. Your greatest adventure is yet to come. The book that you're going to write is yet to come. The thing that you'll invent, your most significant learning is yet to come. Your contribution to culture is yet to come. I'm serious. The more I read about it, the earth, it's yet to come. It's, so, so I think what we've had, is, why have we not been that excited about heaven? I think in some ways we think, well, I'm going from this life, which I kind of love. There's a lot of things I don't want to live. I feel like I'm losing it. If I leave here, I've lost it, and I can't ever have those joys and those pleasures and those things ever again. And I want to tell you that I believe that God is going to restore all things in such a way that you'll get there and go, oh. God knew exactly what he's doing. He knew exactly. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise how God made us in the first place and he made earth in the first place and all the joys and things that we love about this earth, even though there's lots of tainted things too. He's making... He's renewing the earth. He's renewing the earth. So I imagine eating rich, flavorful food with all the best sauces and gravies. My body doesn't get heart disease. I imagine engaging in fun and enjoyable friendships, but I won't have to fear rejection. I imagine working hard and playing hard and resting well, and my body doesn't break down or decline. I imagine a clear mind and a good heart and the natural desire to do what is good and no more fighting with my baser instincts or my natural temptations. I imagine living with a clean conscience before God. In fact, I just look at the world 
and I imagine all the good without all the bad. This is the experience we hope for. Physical, people with new minds, people with new hearts, with physically resurrected bodies on a renewed and restored earth. In fact, I just want to say this as simply as I can. You were made for the renewal of all things. You were made for the renewal of all things. Um, I was just reading some John Eldridge, real good, really good stuff on heaven. Let me read you just a couple paragraphs from him that I thought were just... The thing you are made for is the renewal of all things. God has given you a heart for his kingdom, not the wispy vagaries of a cloudy heaven, but the sharp reality of the world made new. This is one of the most important things you can know about yourself. Did you know that about yourself? When was the last time you told yourself as you looked in the mirror in the morning, good morning, you have a heart for the kingdom? This explains so much. It will be such an enormous help to you. It explains your anger and all of your addictions. It explains your cry for justice. It also explains the growing hopelessness, resignation, cynicism, and defeat. If we listen for kindness and compassion to our own souls, we'll hear the echoes of a hope so precious we can barely put words to it, a wild hope we can, barely, we can hardly bear to embrace. God put it there. He also breathed the corresponding promise into the earth. It is the whisper that keeps coming to us in moments of golden goodness. But of course, God has made everything beautiful in its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. That's Ecclesiastes 3.11. The secret to your unhappiness and the answer to the agony of the earth are one and the same. We're longing for the kingdom of God. We're aching for the restoration of all things. That is the only hope strong enough, brilliant enough, glorious enough to overcome the heartache of this world. You know, one of the most, um, I think, significant scriptures about the restoration of all things is Romans chapter 8. We read it a few weeks ago, and just bring it back to you. Bring it back to you today. It says, "I consider that our present sufferings are not worth compared to the glory that will be revealed in us." If you're going to lay them down and say, "Man, I'm really suffering," there's the comparable to the good upside glory that God has in store for us. It's way greater. It goes up way higher than this goes down deeper. For the creation, the creation, the earth heavens and earth, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration. That's what we talked about with the the chili pot with the rancid beans. That's what happened, is that when man sinned against God, creation was subjected to frustration. Now, how did that work? Well, the enemy had a role in it, in temptation. Humanity had the main role in deciding to disobey God, and to reject God's plan for their lives. Instead of worshiping God as God, they decided they wanted to be God. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to go their own way and not go God's way. So God, in judgment, subjected creation to frustration. Not by, it wasn't by creation's own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and then here's a great phrase, subjected it in hope. So it wasn't just like God judged the world and now it was done and, and this whole experiment with humans and God living together on the earth or having relationship on the earth was done and over and the enemy had won. It wasn't like that. There was hope in that. Even as he was subjecting it, there was hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So here's something that I I think is still sort of breathtaking to get our heads around. When humanity fell, creation fell. 
It's sort of like planet Earth rode downhill on our coattails. When we sinned against God, when we rebelled against him, when we rejected his rightful claim over our lives, it didn't just affect us. It affected the world. You know, you, t- you read about the first two chapters about man and animals. You read the last two chapters about man and animals, and even some of the prophecies in between that talk about man and animals in the new heaven and the new earth. And it's like, we really get along with animals. I don't know, ever run into a pit bull in a dark alley? <laughs> That'd be about the time you'd say, oh, I'd rather have the new heaven and the earth, new earth right now. <laughs> There's a lot that has fallen. I mean, we, we see across our world, we see disasters, we see all sorts of different ways you can die on this planet. We see all sorts of organisms that if we take into our system that we get sick. We all see all sorts of things that corrupt and make it hard to, to you know, make progress. And, and it once was different. But creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but because we sinned and because God needed to judge that sin. But he did it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to, to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So we are going to be brought into a level of freedom. We're going to be brought into a level of glory, and creation is going to ride on those coattails as well. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So we talked last week about the resurrection and how important that is, the resurrection of our bodies that will be given new bodies. But then, this is also tied to the new heaven and the new earth. I, th- I think of a, a quote, again, that I think ties into um, what I just read from John Eldridge. And it's one I heard a long time ago. And um, it's just this. The man that rings the door of the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. So when I, let me just pause, give you that thought for a second. So here's, here's the scenario. We're looking for things. We're hungry for things. We're longing for things. But we're often looking in the very wrong places to get them. And so we're longing for significance and transcendence and love and respect and belonging. We're longing for joy and meaning in our lives. And the bad news is that we often go to places where Uh, It's a sinful solution. It's something that will cause even more devastation in our world if we choose those things. But the good news is God has made us for transcendence. He has made us for glory. He has made us for joy and meaning and purpose and love and respect and belonging. He's made us for those things. You were made for the renewal of all things. And that's why we ache here. That's why we groan here, just like creation groans with us. We're not there yet. But it's our, it's our, leg, it's our inheritance. It's what we, we are meant to have. It's what we are meant to experience. And so we've said in this series, we've said we want to have eyes on eternity. When we talk about heaven and earth and the restoration of everything we love, I always think we have to use a bit of a, a uh, surgeon's knife on that phrase because everything you love, you say, oh, great. Well, what if somebody loves something that's sort of harmful? Like, what if you love crystal meth or something like that? How does that work out? I think the thing is that we are poor at satisfying our own longings. We are poor at satisfying our own desires because we, just like Adam and Eve, go to the wrong source. 
They didn't trust God to satisfy them. And so they went their own way. And it's still a problem in our, in our world today. It's still a problem. We still hear the sirens all of, this will satisfy you. This will, this will make you, this will restore you. And those things won't. But God hasn't neglected the fact that we need those things and that we're wired for those things and we're designed for those things. And so he promises to give us what will be the satisfaction of those longings in our hearts. In him. And in a restored earth in glorified bodies together. Let me read you one last verse out of Revelation 21 this morning. It's bad news, good news. It says, nothing impure, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So if you say, oh man, I know there's stuff that's impure in my life, I've done some things that are shameful and deceitful, is there any hope for me? And there is incredible hope for you, is that God is in the restoration business with people too. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore each one of us. And so he, our, we, our, lamb, our names can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life when we come to him in repentance and say, God, I'm just like the rest of humanity that's sinned and gone its own way. And I need your restoration in my life. I need your forgiveness. I need your leadership. I, I want to return in a way to what was in the garden before Adam and Eve chose to disobey. I want, to read, I want to acknowledge your claim on my life. I want to be yours. And I want to experience all that you have for me. I'm trusting you with the satisfaction of my heart. I'm trusting you and your goodness that you're the one who will not just lead me in this life, but that you have that incredible hope in store for me in the new heaven and the new earth. Would you stand with me? I'll just lead you this morning. We've prayed this prayer. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we had baptism, and I was just really impressed. Chris Drennan, when he was leading different ones in baptism, he used the prayer that we pray. I don't know if you noticed that. He used the prayer that we pray on a regular basis in this church that is a prayer you could pray every day, and it's a prayer that you could pray to commit your life to Christ. That's what it is. And he used that in the baptism tank to ask. Do you remember that? Remember what he said? You know, do do you recognize that God loves you and sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin? Yes. Are you putting your trust, have you put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And is it your desire to live a life that honors God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Remember that? I, I was just so blessed. I thought, that is a great way to utilize this prayer. This morning, if you don't know that you have the hope of eternal life, if you don't know that what God has planned for you, the best recipe of all, if you don't know that that's yours, that you can count on that, that you can lean into that when life is tough now, and then you can know that that's yours for all eternity. If you don't know that today, it's, it's time for you to come to God and just, again, turn from sin. Turn from living independent of God and throw your life on him. Begin to depend on him and trust in him and trust in what he's done for you, what he did for you. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin, it was necessary Otherwise, there's no need for him to die. Our sin is a huge deal. It separates us from God. But it was enough. It was enough. You don't need to add to it a whole bunch of extra religious acts to make yourself right with God. You fully need to trust in what Jesus has done for you. It's trusting in what he's done for you and then letting him lead your life. That's where... God's calling you to today, maybe. So I want to lead you in the prayer. I invite you all to pray it with me. If you've prayed this prayer before and you've committed your life to Christ, pray it just for today. Just recommit yourself today. 
But if you're praying this for the first time to commit your life to Christ, then the Lord knows your heart. He knows exactly where you are. And he will receive you if you come to him in repentance. He will forgive you. And he'll make you his child. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.